how do we build our house on the rock? More importantly, what does the sand look like? I think that's a question that uh, a lot of us have asked when reading this passage. I want to open up by saying I am not a handyman. I do not do repair work very well. Now, you can give me an Ikea shelf, and I will put that sucker together faster than you believe. But that just is an Allen wrench or a screwdriver at best. I think the best I ever did was change a, a broom closet into a pantry space by adding a shelf. Even then, I don't think it was 100% level. Now, on the other hand, my father-in-law is um, very handy. He has a, a general contractor's license and... Um, helped us repair at least one house that we've lived in. Uh, one house that we lived in had three sliding glass doors on the inside of the house. Uh, he came in and, and helped us take those out and, and smooth it over. We built a wall where one of them was because there was a sliding glass door between a bedroom and the office. Um, so we wanted to build a little more privacy. Anyway, he helped us out with that. He has uh, built a mantle for the fireplace that we live in right now. He's very, very handy with what he does. And I'm a little envious of that. Um, but regardless of that, I, I'm not a builder. I'm not handy. But I do seek to build for myself a life that is modeled after Christ. Now, some of us here may, be, may consider ourselves handy in one way or another. Some of us may actually, or some of you may actually be uh, repair people of some form or another. Uh, but if not, even if you're not, we all are trying to build something for ourselves. We're all trying to build for ourselves a better life, making it more secure, safer, be able to give our family just a little bit more. We're trying to, to build up this security for our own lives. Whether you be a doctor or a lawyer, an accountant, a nurse, whatever you do for in your life, all of us are trying to build our lives up. But sometimes it's a little unclear as to what should be done next or how we go about making our lives a little bit better. We follow the desire to grow our own safety. And in doing so, it often leads us astray. After all, Christ told, his, uh, told those who asked to follow him that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It's not really a safe or a secure way to go about life. Take up your cross and follow me, he would say. Not really a safe or secure life. So sometimes it leads us astray. Now don't get me wrong, uh, seeking that out is not a bad thing. Uh, Wesley said, make all you can and save all you can so that you can give all you can. But seeking out that security is not a bad thing. At other times, following God's will can seem confusing can seem a little hazy at best. Has any of you ever had that feeling that you're just completely lost and trying to figure out what God wants you to do? Sometimes I want to know what's ten steps down the road. But the most God will ever show me is what's right in front of my feet. And the rest is just kind of a fog and a haze. And trying to take that next step is one of the hardest things to do because I just don't know where I'm going. And I like to know where I'm going. So sometimes following God's will can become hazy and foggy, and so instead we seek a path that is um, easier to tell, easier to determine where we're going, even if it's going in the wrong, uh, wrong direction. 
even with the best of intentions, sometimes life can seem unclear. The scripture we heard read this morning, Matthew 7, 21 through 29, is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is believed to have taken place on Mount Arbel. And we have a, a map to show exactly where that is. It's northeast of Nazareth, southwest of Capernaum, on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. It would have been a path that, uh, as Jesus went from Nazareth to Capernaum, uh, he would have passed by Mount Arbel. It is believed that this is the place where he uh, went through and gave the Sermon on the Mount. Now, from the Mount, you have this pretty amazing view of all of northern Galilee. This is um, a view of what Mount Arbel looks like today and the surrounding countryside. You really can see for miles around. Now, we'd certainly call this a mountain here in Florida where anything over 100 feet is a hill. But it's between 1,000 and 3,000 feet above sea level, so it's, not, it's more like foothills you might consider it. Um, but mountains are very important in Scripture. You see, Moses and the burning bush happened on a mountain. Moses received God's word on the mountain. Elijah heard the still small voice of God on the mountain. Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. And it was on a mountain that Jesus gave the final commission to his apostles before he ascended. Mountains have this very powerful image in Scripture. There's a powerful understanding of a connectedness to God. And so Jesus starts on his way and offers us the, the Sermon on the Mount. As he's going along, Matthew 5, 1 through 2a says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them. Now, in the next two chapters after Matthew 5, we have the Sermon on the Mount, which has been read and taught and preached on time and time again. Out of the Sermon on the Mount come the Beatitudes. Out of the Sermon on the Mount comes the Lord's Prayer that we pray every time we gather around the table to take communion. Every week in here. Out of the Sermon on the Mount comes an image of what life should look like. And at the end of this functions, uh, Matthew seven twenty one through 29, functions as a transition piece. Jesus is, is winding down his Sermon on the Mount and wants to come down and give a, a so what moment. Now you've heard all of these things I've said. Jesus is telling the crowd, now, what do you do with it after today? And so he tells this story. He gives this parable. And the beginning of it, he says, on that day. Other versions will translate it as on judgment day. Many will say, Lord, Lord. The Greek word there is kurios, which does translate as Lord. It may also translate as rabbi, great one or teacher. So on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, teacher, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Didn't we do all the right things? Jesus' response is, I will say on that day, I never knew you. Get away from me. 
that honestly is a bit of a terrifying idea that one day I might stand and say, Lord, Lord, and hear the response, I never knew you. Probably would have been a little bit of a shock to the people who were listening. They might have sat up a little straighter and said, well, I've said that. The disciples may have even called Jesus Lord at that time. Kurios, teacher. So they may have sat up a little straighter, listened a little harder to see what exactly Jesus was talking about. And what the point Jesus was trying to make at that time is, you cannot call me teacher if you do not take what I have taught you and actually apply it. Anyone who's tried to teach somebody else, you cannot call them a student and they cannot call you a teacher if you spend all day with them trying to teach and trying to instill in them some new lesson if they don't apply it afterwards. So Jesus is saying, you can call me teacher all day. And I'm trying to teach you right now. But if you don't take these lessons and apply them to your own life, you can't call me teacher. The words fall flat. So he's giving a call to action. He says, don't call me teacher unless you're actually going to do something about it. And this is what it looks like. He gives the parable of the wise and the foolish builder. He says, if you call me teacher, and if you apply this sermon that you've just heard and all of the scripture that you have read and learned up until this point, if you do that, you'll be like a wise builder. Now, the Lucan version of this parable starts off saying the wise builder dug down to find the bedrock. He didn't just start building his house. He actually got out his shovel and started digging to make sure there was a solid foundation underneath. So Luke would tell you he digs deep before he builds his house. This wise builder knows to plan first. The foolish builder, on the other hand, just starts slapping the wood together putting things up, doesn't check to make sure they're on the bedrock. If you've read the, the chapter from Adam Hamilton's The Way this week, Adam Hamilton uh, suggests two different images. He said in that area there would be um, small creeks during the dry or rainy season, uh, or the, during the dry season. A foolish builder might say, well, I want a house right on the creek. I'm going to build my house right next to this beautiful little creek. I only have to walk three steps from my front door to get fresh water. The wise builder, on the other hand, would say, well, it's a small creek now, but it's the dry season. A couple months from now, we're going to have rain, and this creek will swell into a raging torrent. And if my house is three steps from it, it will be swept away. So I'm going to put it up a little bit higher and a little farther away. The wise builder moves the house away from the creek, knowing he'll have to walk, but at the same time knowing that when the rains come, it will be okay. So Jesus says, the wise builder is the one who plans and builds a house intentionally. The wise builder is the one who takes the words that I'm giving you today and begins to live them out. In the Beatitudes, we hear, blessed are the humble. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. We're told those will inherit the earth. In other words, Jesus is saying, you yourself should be poor in spirit. 
You yourself should be humble. You yourself should be meek. If you do these things, you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. He gives us the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In that prayer, Christ teaches us that we should seek our daily bread. Seek to put our trust wholly and entirely in God. Rather than try to uh, build for us our secure future financially. uh, But give all we can and require only what is needed for today. And then he says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. When I pray the Lord's Prayer, half the time I stumble over that verse. Half the time I stumble over that one phrase. Because what Christ is teaching us is our our forgiveness is contingent upon our ability to forgive somebody else. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're saying, forgive me the same way I have forgiven the one who has wronged me. Now, if we truly lived into that, how many of us would get a little bit of forgiveness when we prayed that? And how many of us would get a lot? Now, I sometimes have a hard time forgiving somebody who's wronged me. If you don't believe me, ride in the car for a little bit. I yell at the cars around me when they cut me off or run the stop sign. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That is what Jesus is telling us. This whole sermon is a way of life. And at the end, he's saying, so what? Take it, use it, and apply it. Don't just go home and think that everything will be a-okay. You know, in the early church, they um, used this phrase, Lord, Lord, as kind of a magic incantation. They used it in worship. They'd say, Lord, Lord, kurios, kurios, believing that the Lord would be present. They came into worship to be filled but they let that be a substitute for the life that they were called to live. They let that be a substitute for the work that God had called each and every one of them to, had called each and every one of us to. Worship can be a way of finding worth without actually going out and helping it establish the kingdom of God. It can be a way to try and sate our desire for a personal relationship with Jesus. Interestingly enough, Jesus does not often talk about a personal relationship with him. Instead, he talks about establishing the kingdom of heaven. That is where we find worth. And that is where our worship should be directed. Too many times the the pastor, the preacher, develops this preacher voice. That when they get up in the pulpit, they deliver this strong oration that sounds wonderful and fantastic. But it's something that they don't live out. So their sermon becomes a profession that is professed instead of a profession of faith that is lived out. I've admitted this many times before in other churches and settings, but uh, more than half the time when I'm giving a sermon, I'm giving it to myself. Because I need to hear these words just as much as anybody. On the other hand, the worshiper can turn the sacrament into an emotional substitute for work. We come in and receive that piece of bread and and dip it into the cup. 
the body and blood of Christ broken and shed for each and every one of us. It fills us up a little emotionally so that we can go out and face the week. But when we go out, we leave everything we learned here at the door. And we don't pick it up again until the following Sunday when we come back in. Jesus is saying, if that is the life that you're living out, when you cry out to me, Lord, Lord, my response will be, I never knew you. Instead, build your house on the sand. When we just leave everything on, at the door, when we don't take it out and we don't live it out, that's when we get into those accusations that Christians are just hypocritical. They say that the world needs saving, but they need it worst of all. You should just see how they act. Christ tells us to, to build our house on rock. Don't build it on sand. Some of you have um, undoubtedly noticed the giant wooden tower that I've set up here. Um, again, I'm not a handy person. I didn't make it. Somebody else um, cut all the wood for us. But this is uh, giant Jenga, if anybody's familiar with giant Jenga. Um, if anybody's familiar with Jenga, this is obviously a little larger than that. Uh, but I want to use this to kind of talk about what our life looks like when we start to um, move away from the life God called us to. We try and find areas that we can pluck out. Um, I really put this together pretty well this morning. This could be fun and interesting. But we might take the first one out and say, you know, I don't need to go to worship every single week. I don't need to be a part of the community of believers. And so, you know, I'll take that out. Maybe I'll find another priority to put back in its place, but it's not going to fit back there, so I've got to stack it on top. You know, I don't need to worry about Bible study so much. You know, after all, I grew up in the church. I know all the Bible stories. And so why go and be fed? Well, the truth is there might be somebody else who needs to hear the things that you have learned. And you can be one who sharpens somebody new in the church. So we take out Bible study. Say, it's no big deal. You know, I'll put another priority in its place. Y'all are in the splash zone, by the way. <laughs> and we try and take more and more out. There's another one. Maybe we take out some of the spiritual disciplines. Money's tight. It's easy to say, I'll tithe next week. And so I'll put something else in the place. Working at it a little farther. It becomes more and more unsteady as we take out discipline after discipline and practice after practice. And pretty soon it starts to turn on us. And things are unsteady and unsure. And then we take out one piece at the bottom... And, it, and I've got to clean it up. And it falls apart. We build lives out of our house by our very character. Whether we're intentional about it or not, it begins to form. Every action that we take is another timber in the house. Every thought that we have is another nail that tries to hold it together. Every deed that we do or don't do is a window that is placed well or placed poorly. And in the end, that house will be tested. Not Life does not go by perfectly. 
We have bumps. We have bruises. There are things that get in the way along the way or along our life. On those times, that house will be built, uh, will be tested. Your character will be tried. If we're not living a life modeled after the life Christ would have us live, it falls apart. Every person must live in the house that they built. What do you want your house to look like? Is a question Christ ends with on that Sermon on the Mount. Do you want to be the foolish builder who has slapped their house together without any forethought, preparation, or attention to detail? Do you want, or do you want to be the wise builder that has dug down to find the bedrock, has set their house so that when the floodwaters come, they will be safe and secure? So that when trials come in your life, you will be found not wanting but in God's grace. So who's living this out? And I want to close with just this one uh, story. I'm not Catholic. I was not raised Catholic. But I love the new pontiff. Pope Francis is a really cool dude. And there's a story that didn't really make great headlines that I read a couple months ago. Pope Francis apparently is sneaking out at night. He is donning the vestments of a traditional uh, priest leaving the Vatican in the evening and going and ministering to the poor, going and helping those who are in need. He shows us what it means to have a house built that glorifies God and works towards the establishment of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Jim is ending his sermon with uh, a video clip from a very small, wise, green uh, individual. Star Wars, uh, Yoda offers the advice to Luke when he says, I'm trying as hard as I can. Yoda responds, do or do not. There is no try. Build your house on the rock or the sand. The choice is yours. Let's pray.